a bit of the electrical goods section was really not very, very shoddy classifying as far as I can see. So I thought I can do better than that, and I thought, I'll write my own classified ad. Would you like to hear it? Yes. Jolly good. <clears throat> Here we go. Glenda Reed's classified ad. <clears throat> Dewey-eyed librarian, Sagittarian, vegetarian, libertarian. Long overdue for a fine romance. So shelve your fears and take a chance. You can read me like a book, so come and take a closer look. Look me up, look me down, cover to cover. Take me out on the town, book lover. File me under loose leaf, but don't leave me undefiled. You're bound to enjoy yourself, so don't leave me on the shelf. Like Onan, the librarian, I have issues about being alone, and I wish you would page me for a date. Don't label me, don't be late, and we'll be fine. I'll take off your jacket. I'll run my index finger down your spine. Hmm, hard back. <clears throat> You all take off my reading glasses, and as you caress my tresses, I'll give you headings from the Library of our Congress. Shh. So, so, uh, so I, uh, I had a response to my, to my ad um, from a gentleman who said he was a cardiologist. I was very excited about this because um, my time of life, it's very important to be around people who know a lot about, about cardigans. Um, they're very important to our profession. And he also said that he had a large print hardback Moby Dick. So, as you can imagine, I had great expectations about getting my hands on that. But imagine my disappointment when it turned out all he had was a little Kindle. So, so that was the end of that. And I thought, well, I'll just go back to my hobbies and my cats and my books. And one of my favorite hobbies is date stamping. And uh, I, yeah, I won the gold medal for date stamps, fastest date stamper in South London, 1975. I'm still proud of that. And so, um, thank you very much. Thank you. And so, imagine my delight when in the back of this magazine, in the same section as the classified ads, was an advertisement for a speed dating event. A speed dating event. I thought, at last, my skills can be recognized once more. So, I polished her up and, uh, and I went along. And uh, I sat down at a table, and a young man came and sat opposite me, and he said, oh, Glenda, what are your interests? And I said, come on, young man, there's no need to be coy. I said, we both know what we're here for. I said, you know, I don't like to boast, but I have won medals for it, you know. I'm one of the fastest in the country, so um, let's not beat about the bush. I said, show me what you're made of, young man. I said, oh. I've got, I said, it's, uh, it's all lubricated and ready. Come on, come on, what are you waiting for? And uh, he went away, and another young man came along, and we had much the same conversation. And at the end of the evening, I hadn't stumped any books, but I did have 50 telephone numbers, bizarrely enough. So there we are, very, very odd, most odd. And um, <clears throat> so there we are. I've not been very lucky with these things. How, uh, how much longer do I have? Oh, we have one minute. I think, in that case, I might finish with a song. Would that be all right? I know you're not supposed to. So um, I'm going to have this. So I had to find, basically, I had to find another use for my day stamp. Nobody wanted me to stamp their books anymore. They have these machines in libraries now that are called self-issue, which to me sounds like a kind of 
something you would find in the 616.693 section, frankly. And uh, so I, uh, I thought, I'll have to find another use for my dit stamp. So it makes a fine percussion instrument. So here we are. I'm going to sing a jolly little song, which I didn't write myself, I confess, but uh, you'll soon get the gist of it, and there's a nice little chorus you can all join with. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> hey, folks, there's a really cool place you can be. It's a lot of fun. You will see. You can learn a lot about the world that we live in in your local library. Library, library. That's the place where books are free. The library, the library. It's much better than watching TV. There's books about almost everything. You can always find something you're interested in. Plate tectonics, embroidery, book jam at the Hootenanny. The library, the library. That's the place where books are free. The library, the library. It's much better than MP3s. Now, lots of successful people agree. Knowledge is the thing that can set you free. So if you want to end up famous like me, join your local library. The library, the library. That's the place where books are free. The library. Oh, the library. <laughs> Librarians are awfully sexy. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, people. Um, just a, sorry to bring you down a little. Um, just in my real self, Stevie, um, this is a little difficult for me to do tonight because we've, we've lost a very uh, important member of our community in Brixton today, we just found out, who was a, a local musician who many of you will have known who often helped me out with my act and did music for me and everything. So um, if we could just raise a glass to Simon King. Simon King, okay. Thank you. The comedian and critic Alexi Sales says of our next reader's collection of stories, some are dark and disturbing tales of lives viewed under the mad end of the microscope. Others are more a glimpse of lives gone sideways. Vicky Groot reveals through language how subtle, sinister, and arresting our lives are under the surface. Ladies and gentlemen, Vicky Groot. That's, that's a tall order, actually. I'm not sure I can live up to all of that. Um, the story I'm going to read tonight is called An Unplanned Event. And there are quite a few people um, from my neighborhood here. And this story is inspired by some of the people that, that live in our area. Uh, an unplanned event uh, mean is um, I went on a health and safety course once, and that's the definition of an accident, an unplanned event. Um, 
is this Mrs. McCluskey's house. The speaker, a stout blonde child of about 10, stood on the other side of the gate. Eric straightened up and leaned on his spade, enjoying the feel of the metal as it sank into the well-tended soil. Depends, he grinned. Who's asking? The boy frowned. Mrs. McCluskey goes to our church. Oh, does she now? Eric had been doing Mrs. M's garden for about three years, ever since the Croydon business. He tended to say early retirement when he talked about all that, as in, I used to be a night watchman, uh, but then I had to take early retirement. Uh, Mrs. McCluskey was also retired. She'd been a head teacher, which probably meant she had a big fat pension. She had a metal grill over her front door, which she kept locked unless she was coming out to bring Eric tea and biscuits. She usually did that around four o'clock in the afternoon. My name is Thomas, said the child. Mrs. McCluskey is expecting me. Used to know a Thomas, Eric said, in the children's home, big lad, handy with his fists. That must be a different person, said the boy. I do not live in a children's home. I live with my mother and my mother's boyfriend. I see, Eric muttered, although he didn't at all. In fact, he closed his eyes for a second or two. He hadn't been feeling too well lately. Mrs. McCluskey, the boy's tone grew insistent. Do you know if she's in the house? Only now did Eric notice that the lad had a bit of an accent. Hows, he said. Oh, ho. This gave him some ammunition. You're not English, are you? Where are you from? This seemed to resolve things for the boy. He stopped making eye contact. He lifted the latch, opened the gate, and walked up the path to the house as if Eric had ceased to exist. Kosovo, is it? Eric called after him. Croatia? Romania? How about Bulgaria? The boy ignored him and rang the doorbell. Czech Republic? Serbia? Poland? That produced a brief flickering glance. Aha, gotcha. You're Polish. Ha ha, I knew it. If you were in a quiz, you would get not any points for that, the boy said coldly. You have to know the answer first time. Guessing is not the same as knowledge. Eric rested back on his spade again, winded by the cheek of the lad. Little beggar, he muttered. He repeated the phrase more loudly for Mrs. M's benefit when she appeared at the door. She paid no attention. She unlocked the grill and, smiling, ushered the boy inside. Oh, ho, like that, is it, thought Eric. The smarty-pants foreign boy was invited into the house, but he, Eric, was only good enough for the garden. So that was how the land lay. Now it was out in the open. He turned back to his digging, rooting and twisting, stabbing at the earth with a spade. He tore up a clump of couch grass. He massacred a bramble, then turned on the stump of dead forsythia that had been mouldering in the corner of the garden all the time that he'd worked for Mrs. M. Three years, and never once in all that time had he been invited to cross the threshold. After about half an hour, young Bobby passed by on the road carrying a small dog under one arm. Hiya, Eric. Eric straightened up and nodded. Bobby was 18, pale, spotty, always hunched over to one side, a bit wrong-looking. People said that was because Bobby's mother had been drunk all the time that she'd been carrying him, but at least Bobby had a mother. He knew the sound of her voice and where she could be found at any time of the day, at her cleaning job or in the pub. And he had a father, which was more than a lot of people could say. Bobby's father was a prison guard. A good job. Eric told Bobby about the hoity-toity Polish boy. 
It's her I'm worried about. Lord knows what he's getting up to when her back's turned. Bobby nodded and waggled his eyebrows. The dog gave a squeaky yawn. It's my mum's, said Bobby, by way of an explanation. It only walks when it knows it's going home, so I've got to carry it off a ways and then put it down and it runs back. Otherwise, it don't get no exercise. Eric laughed long and hard at that. You could always rely on Bobby for entertainment. Bobby looked annoyed. It's not my fault. It's a lady's dog. Thank you. Vicky Groot, ladies and gentlemen. Tamsin Gray's debut novel is tender, funny, and unsettling. She is wise about the street, and she is wise about the human heart, especially the hearts of children. Like Dickens, she sets her young characters adrift in the tumultuous London of today and follows their story with voices that are pitch-perfect, Ladies and gentlemen, Tamsin Gray. Hello. Uh, so I'm going to read you an extract from, from that novel. It's called She's Not There. It's the story of um, uh, a boy called Jonah who wakes up. His mother has disappeared, and they're a one-parent family, he and his brother, so they're all by themselves. It's set in Loughborough Junction, just down the road, which is where I live. Uh, so I'm reading an extract right from the beginning of the book where Jonah has already gone and checked in his mother Lucy's bedroom and found she's not there, and now he's gone into the bathroom to see if he's there. she's there. His pupils, large from the darkness, had to quickly shrink again because the light was flooding in through the open window, bouncing between the mirrors and the taps and the water in the bath. The bathwater was green and shimmery with a few black squiggly hairs floating on the surface. Jonah put his hand in and the light on the ceiling broke into ripples. The water was lukewarm and very oily and when he pulled out his hand, one of the hairs was coiled around his fingers. He got some toilet paper and wiped it off and then he put the paper down the toilet before leaving the bathroom and going to stand at the top of the stairs. He looked down and his heart beat faster because the front door was open. Jonah padded downstairs and, onto, and out onto the street. Under his feet, the pavement was still cool, but the light was blinding. The house was on a corner. Jonah looked first towards Wanless Road, which was still in shadows. On the far side of the road, the metal blinds were still down over the short four shops one of them spray-painted with the word pussy. A wheelie bin, its lid thrown open, balanced precariously on the curb. Then he turned his head and shaded his eyes with his hand to look down sun-drenched Southway Street. The pretty houses looked like they still had their eyes closed. Only the light moved, glinting on the parked cars and the netted metal cages around the spindly white trees. Jonah turned and walked around the corner into Wanless Road. It was wider than Southway Street, with no trees, and wheelie bins were parked at intervals along the pavements like Daleks. The broken house was next to theirs, and through a, and, but there was a gap in between. The broken house was older than all the terraced houses, 
and had been much bigger and grander, all on its own, in its garden. They could see right into it from Lucy's bedroom window, but from here it was hidden by high joined together boards, covered in places by tumbling passion flower and dotted with keep out signs. In fact, it was easy to get in. One of the boards had come loose and you could push it open like a door and slip inside. Jonah walked through the stillness like he was the only thing left alive, dragging his fingers along the splintery boards. The loose board had been left ajar and he peered through. The nettles had grown as high as his chest. The broken house looked back at him like a sad old horse. It was a long time since he'd been in there. As he turned away, with a start, he noticed Violet. The fox was standing, still as a statue, on the bonnet of a filthy white van. Their eyes met, and although he knew her well, he felt shy of her, almost scared. He said, hello, Violet, trying to sound normal, but his voice croaked, and all of a sudden she leapt onto the pavement and flitted into the broken house's tangled garden. Animals can sense your fear, he remembered his mother saying. They can smell it, and it makes them frightened. He looked after the fox for a moment, and then at the white marks her scrabbling paws had left on the van's thick grey dirt. He turned to walk back to their house, which was when he saw the raggedy man. The raggedy man was standing against the wall of the squatter's house, like Violet so still that Jonah hadn't noticed him. His feet were turned in, and his arms hung down like coat sleeves. Remember, he was a boy like you once, Jonah heard his mother say in his head, but he quickened his step, crossing his arms over his naked chest. The raggedy man was tall and gnarled like a tree, growing out of his filthy, raggedy tracksuit. He never said anything, ever, not a single word. Jonah found himself saying, a boy like you once, over and over in his head as his feet padded quickly along the pavement. He turned into Southway Street and from the corner of his eye he saw the raggedy man put his hand in the pocket of his tracksuit bottoms and pull something out. Then the arms snapped out straight, the hand splayed open, offering something. Jonah hesitated on his doorstep. There was an object glinting in the raggedy man's palm. A coin? He darted a look up at the grisly face. The huge, angry eyes stared back at him. He looked away quickly, scurried inside, and closed the door. Tamson Gray, ladies and gentlemen. Now... South London authors Dirty South and Dulwich Raider explore the joys of the dark underbelly of South London through their blog, Deserter. Well, tonight, they're bursting back through the looking glass, previewing their new collection, Today, South London, Tomorrow, South London. And they are appearing in subversive tandem order. Ladies and gentlemen, Dirty South followed by Dulwich Raider. Thank you, Barry. Thank you, Brixton Book Jam. 
This is School Run Pub Crawl. It started with a hangover. It ended with a kiss. Me and Spider dropped my little boy at school and staggered to the centre cafe in Lee Green for a full English in the doomed Leagate shopping precinct, the UK's worst shopping centre, 2010. It was there that Spider became intrigued by the building opposite us, the Edmund Halley, Lee's Weatherspoons. I knew a 10am pint was unwise, but it were lush. <laughs> and so was the next one, before the piss stink from the hideous carpet drove us out. Now we were on a mission. Spider wanted to see the graves of the three astronomers royal, Halley, Nathaniel Bliss and John Pond, all residing at St Margaret's Churchyard nearby. It was our misfortune to discover that the path to the graveyard would take us past the old tiger's head, now open, and the Duke of Edinburgh, and the Dacre Arms. From the Dacre, there's a little alley through to St Margaret's, where we wobbled our way to the graves of the comet botherers. Despite publishing a pioneering catalogue of the stars of the southern skies and making breakthroughs on planetary orbits and navigation, it was Halley's identification of a recurring visiting comet that ensured his immortality, along with his successful prediction of when it would return after his death. Halley's comet will next appear in 2061. Balls, I'm going to miss it, said Spider. Man, your diary gets packed, doesn't it? I said. <laughs> I'll be dead, you prune. So will you. We're just too late. Another generation and we'll crack mortality. You watch. We can live forever. Not the way we're going, we can't, I said, passing the joint. Yeah, well, we might as well enjoy ourselves. We're all going to die. Cheery little fucker, aren't you? Mind you, in the future, you might as well enjoy yourself because you're not going to die. Well, if we're going to miss his comet, I'm glad we went to his stinky pub. After one more at the Hare and Billet, and an encounter with some lovely elderly communists at the Crown, me and Spider parted, just in time for the school pickup. <laughs> After six pubs, it was time to be a responsible parent. <laughs> Where does Drunkle Spider live, Daddy? asked my lad, giving me a hug and a kiss. On another planet, I said. I knew it, he replied. My boy will hopefully be around to see Halley's Comet in 2061. I hope he'll get to see the southern stars that Halley mapped for his catalogue as well. This tale may not provide me with the same kind of immortality afforded to Edmund, but it too is a catalogue of southern stars, albeit only six of them, and to be fair, one of them is a spoon's. We could have spent the day watching daytime TV or doing some of those things that always need doing around the house, or, yes, working, but we chose to spend it living, exploring pubs, science, life, death and socialism, but mostly pubs. Thank you. these days. Um, I'm the other half of Deserter, the Doric Raider. Can't see a thing. Let's take these off. 
This is a story in which I get a haircut before joining the gang for a day watching the Cheltenham Festival in the pubs of Nunhead. Dirty South was already installed when I arrived at the old nun's head, the racing post spread out before him. New Barnet, he said as I sat down. What do they call that? Lesbian seagull? You've got to keep people on their toes, I said. Keep switching it up, yeah? Keep moving forward like a Bowie or a Gaga. I'm pretty sure David Bowie had more than two haircuts a year, he said. This year, Roxy had taken the afternoon off work to join us, and she arrived breathless and excited. I've put five pounds on Saxo Jack, she declared. When it wins, I get a thousand pounds. What's happened to your hair? He's being David Bowie, said Dirty South. Fat White Duke, said Roxy. Put that in your book, innit? Have you finished it yet? Am I in it? Not anymore, I said. <laughs> I suppose half pint's in it, she said with a curl of her lip. Half pint was Roxy's pet name for half-life after he once made the egregious error of getting her a half pint on a rare round. She wasn't impressed. Where is he anyway? On his way, allegedly. The first race began with Roxy Cross because the horses hadn't started in a straight line, but she soon got into the spirit of it, providing her own running commentary. I can't understand a word he's saying. What colour is my guy? I've forgotten his name. It looks like horses with tiny men on their backs. Bloody hell, how long is it going to go on for? I'm dying for a pee. Did I win? <laughs> Roxy didn't win, but Dirty South landed a nine-to-one winner, and our day was off to a flyer. At first, I was disappointed at our next stop, the pyrotechnist's arms, as there was no sign of the free rolls I'd experienced during Cheltenham's gone by. For me, Cheltenham Festival Week is very much about the free rolls. But what the pyro did have was a fine collection of regulars, and by fine, I mean pissed. Completely canned at 2pm, just like you should be on a Cheltenham day. Dirty South got stuck with Joke Man, pleased to have someone new to regale with old jokes. I avoided eye contact and went to the bar. Roxy got sandwiched between a wild-eyed octogenarian and a white patois-speaking dude in a dressing gown. Meanwhile, I was warmly welcomed by a swaying man with roomy eyes and the softest hands I'd ever shaken. Thank you so much for coming, he said sincerely. It means so much to all of us. Can I give you a hug? Outside on Nunhead Green, the sun was trying to come out. How did you get on with pontoon eyes, I asked Roxy, as she fashioned a three-skinner. Pontoon eyes? One twists, the other sticks? Don't be mean, she said. My huggy chum from the pyro ambled over to join us, but the offer of spliff was declined. No, 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 no. That stuff kills your brain cells, he said. Not like getting drunk, that just hurts your liver, and you've got two of them. <laughs> Ordinarily, Nunhead's brilliant micropub, the beer shop, would have been high on our list of priorities, but it didn't open until later in the day. I was gazing over longingly at it when I spotted a horse was being ridden down the road like it was the 1920s. There's yours in the next race, rocks, I said. Um, is that who I think it is, said Dirty South. O-M-fucking-G, I said, as I made out the telltale figure of Half-Life bestride the beast. And was that a cowboy hat? This book of yours is writing itself, said Roxy, as Half-Life rode over to greet us. What the absolute fuck, said Dirty South. Anyone got an apple, said Half-Life. I'm starving. <laughs> Thank you very much.
Ladies and gentlemen, deserter. Now, the Brixton Book Jam has timed each of tonight's three sets perfectly to now allow you to drink a pint or some other alcoholic beverage, both satisfyingly and responsibly. And now it's time to recharge your glasses for the next 15 minutes. And But first, let me correct an error that I made earlier. The Brixton Review of Books is not for sale. It's for free. So go up and grab an issue, if you please. Also, books of all the writers are over yonder corner. And their value will increase more by getting an author to sign one of them. So dig it. We'll be back in 15 minutes.